Quat. I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 10, Oswiu and Edgefrith. Hello again. Thank you for coming back and listening. I'm sorry there's been such a long delay between episode 9 and episode 10. Um, I mentioned in my update a few, we- few weeks ago that um, I'm actually was getting married, and I can say that now I have gotten married. So I obviously got married and had the honeymoon and all of that. And during that time, I didn't really have the availability to write and record more podcast episodes. So I'm sorry that there was such a long pause in uploading, but I am back now and I will be trying to upload much more regularly. So thank you for your patience and I hope you will continue to listen even after this brief pause in the schedule. So last time we talked about Oswald and his revolutionary kingship in Northumbria, his reintroduction of Christianity from Ireland, his death at the hands of Penda and his subsequent sainthood. This week we will be continuing the story of Northumbria by looking at the two kings who succeeded Oswald and who really symbolise beginning of the end for Northumbrian hegemony in Anglo-Saxon England. So after Oswald, Northumbria was again split back into its two constituent kingdoms. Dera was ruled by Oswina of Edwin's family, while Benicio was ruled by Oswald's brother Oswiu. As you may be able to tell, there's an awful lot of people in Northumbria with the first part of the name being Oz. Oswald did have a son, Ethelwald, but he was born in 625, so was still quite young in 642, and this may have caused the throne of Benicia to go to his uncle rather than to him. The throne of Dera went to Oswina, but he was killed and supplanted by Oswiu in the ninth year of the latter's reign, so about 650 to 651. The killing of Oswina was an act for which Oswiu attempted to cleanse himself of guilt. Oswina had refused to fight Oswiu on account of Oswiu's greater military strength, and instead he'd fled to Gilling in Yorkshire, where he'd sought refuge with a friend named Hunwald. Hunwald, however, betrayed Oswina and gave him up to Oswiu, who subsequently had him killed. After this, Oswiu built a monastery at Gilling, where Oswina's memory was venerated, and he was eventually recognised as a local saint. The reason for Oswiu's action, which is roundly condemned by Bede, probably was twofold. Firstly, after the defeat of Oswald, Penda had allowed Northumbria to exist as two separate independent kingdoms. Penda was the most powerful king in England between 642 and 655, and as we will discuss in future episodes on Mercia, he regularly harassed other kingdoms and drove out their kings. In 650 to 651, Penda launched a raid into Northumbria, which reached as far north as Bambra, which he tried and failed to burn to the ground. B tells us that this raid occurred before the death of Aidan in August 651, and the Annals of Ulster alludes to its occurring in 650. It seems possible, given the proximity and date of this raid and Oswiu's decision to annex Dera, that the annexation may have been intended to secure Bernicia from future Mercian attack by guaranteeing a friendly ruler in Dera. Oswiu had good reason to distrust Oswina, since he was in fact a descendant of Edwin. 
Oswiu probably remembered being driven into exile by Edwin and bore a grudge against his family, which may have led him to believe Oswina would ally with Penda to destroy Benicia if given the chance. After annexing Dera, Oswiu established Ethelwald as sub-king, and throughout the rest of his reign, treated Dera as a subordinate kingdom for his sons. This policy, if it was meant to pacify Dera, was a failure, since all but the final Daran king of Oswiu's reign, his heir Edgefrith, attempted to rebel against his overlordship. After consolidating Northumbria, at least for now, Oswiu was in a position to cultivate alliances with other kings as a means to contain Penda. With this also came a new wave of evangelization emanating from Northumbria. In 653, Penda made his son Peada king of the Middle Angles. Peada sought to ally himself with Oswiu through marriage to his daughter. Oswiu made this marriage contingent on Peada's conversion, which opened the Middle Angles up to conversion from the bishops of Lindisfarne. At around the same time, Siobert, king of Essex, was also baptised by the bishop of Lindisfarne, again at Oswiu's request. Both Peada and Siobert were baptised at the royal centre called Ad Murum, which is speculated to have been a part of Hadrian's Wall. The main policy of Oswiu's reign between 651 and 655 was to strengthen Northumbrian borders and contain Mercia through fostering alliances. Peada and Siobert are prime examples of such alliances. The annexation of Dera also represents the fortification of Northumbria against southern aggression. In the north, in 653, Oswiu may have also played a role in establishing his nephew Talorcan as king of the Picts. With the long-standing alliance with Dolryada that presumably continued under Oswiu as it had under Oswald, the pacification of the Picts helped to ensure that Northumbria was safe from attack on its northern border as well. The aim of the policy is clear, but it was not actually very successful. In 655, Ethelwald betrayed Oswiu and allied himself with Penda, something which must have come as a shock given the Mercian king had killed Ethelwald's father. In that year, Penda launched an invasion of Bernicia, which seems to have taken Oswiu by surprise. Penda cornered the Northumbrian and demanded a gift of treasure and Oswiu's own son, Edgefrith, as a hostage. The king had no choice but to give in, and Penda honoured his word by turning to leave Northumbria. The invasion may well have been intended to humble Oswiu and force him into submission. By taking Edgefrith hostage, Penda gained a means of punishing Oswiu if he attempted to threaten Mercia, which his fostering alliances suggested he intended to do. It seemed, though, that all this had been for nothing. But Oswiu, enraged and humiliated, set out with a small force to chase down the Mercians. He surprised them at a place called Winward, and the shock caused many of Penda's allies to rout and abandon him. One ally who did not flee was Athelhera, king of East Anglia, who stood with Penda to fight off the attacking Northumbrians. It was not enough, though, and both Penda and Athelhera were killed by Oswiu's forces. Ethelwald was one of the allies who abandoned Penda, and nothing is known about his fate after Winward. It is certain, though, that he was stripped of the kingdom of Dera, since after 655 the kingdom was ruled by Ulfrith, Oswiu's eldest son. Winward shook the entire political system of Anglo-Saxon England. For decades, Penda had been the most powerful king, regularly bending others to his will. Now he was gone. 
as was the king of East Anglia, and Oswiu was poised to fill the vacuum left behind. Besides its political effects, Winward also had a spiritual effect on England. Penda had been the last king of a major Anglo-Saxon kingdom to hold out against converting to Christianity. While he did allow Mercians to be Christian, he continued to adhere to Anglo-Saxon pagan beliefs and practices. While there is not much evidence that those who allied with him renounced Christianity, indeed Ethelwald is remembered as a pious Christian, Penda's strength must have lent legitimacy to those sympathetic to old traditions, in much the same way that the success of Christian rulers like Edwin and Oswald lent legitimacy to the Christian faith in other kingdoms. With Penda's death, barring apostasy by a powerful ruler, Anglo-Saxon paganism ceased to have any political power in England, and was from then on limited to small enclaves of holdouts and apostates, who had no means of undoing the conversions of powerful rulers. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Following Winward, Oswiu assumed the role of the most powerful king in Anglo-Saxon England, and with it, his policy of mercy and containment became one of supporting allies as a means to assert his overlordship. Several allies, such as Kenwal, returned to the thrones of their kingdoms, while others, such as Peada, were granted new kingdoms by Oswiu. Peada gained the throne of southern Mercia, while the northern part was under direct Northumbrian rule. The web of allies built by Oswiu did not last long, though. Peada was murdered in 656, which caused Oswiu to rule all of Mercia directly and establish his own officials there. After a few years of this, in 658, the Mercians went into revolt and rallied under the banner of Wolfhera, Penda's youngest son, whom they established as a king upon the expulsion of Oswiu's officials. The success of the Mercian rebellion may have been enabled in part by Oswiu's waging, at that time, a war with the Picts upon the death of his nephew Talorcan in 657, and the rise, in his place, of a new king, Gartnet, who had no reason to be loyal to Oswiu. Despite a major victory in 655, and assuming a place of overlordship thereafter, Oswiu's power outside of Northumbria collapsed within five years, and he was left with independent and probably unfriendly Mercians and Picts on the southern and northern borders of Northumbria. What is worse, a growing threat of disunion within the kingdom had also begun to emerge. Oswiu, like Oswald, had converted to Christianity while in exile among the Scots and Irish, and it was from Ireland, and specifically the Hebridean island of Iona, that they drew the leaders of the Northumbrian church. But the Irish had several practices that set them apart from the Church of Rome, 
which had established a foothold in Kent through the mission of Augustine. These practices, in the eyes of some leading Roman churchmen, made the Irish schismatics, or at worst, heretics. Ulfrith, Oswiu's eldest son and ruler of Dera after the Battle of Winward, may have brought the issue to a head. He was raised in the Irish customs, but at some point after becoming King of Dera, he was influenced by Kenwal of Wessex to take into his service an Northumbrian priest trained in the Roman way of doing things named Wilfred. Ulfrith was converted to the Roman custom himself and seemingly became a partisan on its behalf. He expelled the Irish from his foundation of Ripon and gave it to Wilfred. His change seems to have set the stage for conflict with Oswiu. Why would he do that, though? Probably, Ulfrith wanted independence from his father, which may suggest that Edgefrith, despite being Ulfrith's younger half-brother, was the favoured heir. Edgefrith, unlike Ulfrith, had a claim to both Benicia and Dera, and thus he was the logical heir of a unified Northumbria, but still this logic must have stung Ulfrith. In around 660, Edgefrith had been betrothed to Athelfrith, a princess of East Anglia, and it is possible that Ulfrith sought to build his own alliance with Wessex to support him if he needed to press a claim of independence. If one thing should be very clear by now, it's that Anglo-Saxon royal power was very personal, and alliances were a major component of it. The danger of Ulfrith's rejection of Irish practice was not lost on his father. In 664, Oswiu called a synod, that is, a meeting of the church leadership, at Whitby, to address the tensions between the Irish and Roman factions. The Synod of Whitby legislated on three issues. The calculation of Easter, Roman custom was based on a cycle of 19 years, while Irish custom was based on a cycle of 84 years. The shape of the tonsure, that is, the shaved part of a cleric's head, which was used as a symbol of their status, and the validity of Irish orders. The logic being that the church, which had the wrong practices in calculating Easter and tonsuring their clerics, would consequently have suspect authority to ordain clergy. Whitby decreed that the English church should follow Roman custom. This decision was a blow to Northumbria, since it suggested that the Northumbrian clergy ordained by the bishops of Lindisfarne were not actually clergy on account of the errors of the Irish. This only exasperated, rather than lessened, tensions between Oswiu and Ulfrith, as can be seen in their feuding over the Bishop of York in the wake of Whitby. Upon the culmination of the Synod, Alfrith had sent Wilfred to Gaul to be consecrated as Bishop of York, but Wilfred was delayed for mysterious reasons. While he was gone, Oswiu quickly established a priest named Chad in the position. Chad had been ordained in Ireland, although he sided with the Romans at Whitby, when, in 668, the reforming Archbishop of Canterbury, Theodore of Tarsus, arrived in England, he removed Chad and reconsecrated him through all of the clerical grades, indicating that in his eyes, Chad had never really been a cleric at all, which can only be explained by inferring that Theodore saw Irish ordinations as invalid due to the Irish Church's errors. Chad was afterwards made Bishop of Lichfield with Oswiu's consent, while Theodore chose Wilfred as the new Bishop of York. Probably, Oswiu had swept in and installed Chad as a means to undermine Alfred's position. Theodore, though, by installing Wilfred, rebuked Oswiu, 
and played directly into Alfred's hands. With Whitby, Oswiu seems to have been trying to secure his kingdom at home, and to position himself as the obvious overlord of a Christian England in line with the Church of Rome. He had, it seems, secular aims, and probably these were informed as much by the collapse of his policy of puppet rulers as by the trouble looming from Alfred. None of this is to say that religious beliefs were not sincerely held, only that there are also clear political motives behind the Synod. What Oswiu did not count on was the arrival of Theodore, a powerful figure who was determined to assert his own authority as Archbishop of Canterbury. By accepting Roman custom to pacify Ulfrith, Oswiu also accepted the authority of Canterbury, which led to the sidelining of Lindisfarne with its close ties to Oswiu's family, in favour of a distant bishop who had no personal ties to the Northumbrian king. The removal of Chad suggests that Oswald's last power play did not go as he had hoped. While Whitby united the English in following Roman custom and cemented the authority of the Archbishop of Canterbury, it also removed Oswiu's ability to influence ecclesiastical politics in his own kingdom, thus further weakening his position. In the end, Whitby also did not pacify Alfred, which is probably not surprising, given that Oswiu was clearly still determined to assert his authority over his son. While Wilfred was on the continent, Ulfrith seems to have risen in rebellion with the aid of the Mercians. This rebellion was unsuccessful, and Ulfrith vanishes from history in the aftermath. Edgefrith was set up as the king of Dera in his place. Probably it was because of the removal of Ulfrith that Oswiu accepted Theodore's decision to install Wilfrid in 669, since the one who would benefit most from the appointment, Ulfrith, was no longer in the picture. Whitby and Ulfrith's rebellion occupy Oswald's twilight years. He died in 670 to 671. He had briefly ruled an extremely powerful Northumbria, but that had lasted for only a very few years after 655. It had all crumbled very quickly, and his final years were spent trying to strengthen his grip on the kingdom he feared was rapidly disintegrating. In the process, he only managed to further weaken himself. Oswiu seems to have been a particularly autocratic king. He broke custom in establishing direct rule in areas like northern Mercia, while elsewhere he exploited personal alliances to a masterful degree to establish friendly rulers in previously hostile kingdoms. Yet, this was resented by many, even his own son, and this resentment was the catalyst for the collapse of the policy. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcast. Oswiu was succeeded by Edgefrith. As a military leader, and it's mainly as a military leader that we know much about Edgefrith's right time as king, he was clearly an extremely talented man, 
but this would also prove to be his undoing. Edgefrith had suppressed a Pictish revolt in 672, and in 673 he may have subjugated the Dolriadans. This was a major break in Northumbrian foreign policy, since Oswald and Oswiu had both fostered close relations with the Dolriadans, and this had probably been key to their success as kings. Edgefrith, however, shattered that alliance. He also made war south of the Humber against the old enemy, the Mercians. In 674, Edgefrith defeated Wolfhera in battle and took the kingdom of Lindsay, which had passed out of Northumbrian control with Wolfhera's rebellion. But in 679 to 680, Edgefrith was defeated by Athelred of Mercia at the Battle of the Trent, which permanently absorbed Lindsay back into Mercia and effectively ended the ability of Northumbria to assert dominance in the south. Edgefrith also faced political unrest at home. In 678, he quarrelled with Wilfred and expelled him from York with Theodore's blessing. The archbishop supported this move, despite previously installing Wilfred against the wishes of Oswiu, because Wilfred had built up an enormous diocese and powerful monastic network through his patronage of churches as Bishop of York. He had, we are told by his biographer Edius Stephanus, amassed a large retinue of men obliged to fight on his behalf if he called on them. This strongly suggests that Wilfred was a major player in Northumbrian politics, probably to a greater extent than he really should have been as bishop. Theodore, who longed to found more churches and improve pastoral care, resented this build-up, which must have undermined the quality of pastoral care in the Diocese of York, as it became simply too large and unwieldy. Edgefrith, although we do not know the exact reason for his quarrel with Wilfred, probably recognised him as a threat to the stability of Northumbria. He had, after all, been a tool of Alfred's, meant to assert his independence from Bernicia, and now he was amassing a sizeable fighting force of his own. Clearly, in the 670s, Edgefrith did not feel entirely secure in his position, and had Wilfred removed. After Trent, Edgefrith militarily turned his attention back to the north, where he repeatedly raided into Pictland, Delriada, and even Ireland. This was ultimately the cause of his downfall. In 685, he invaded Pictland, against the advice of his advisers, where he met a Pictish army led by King Brithay Macbelly at a place called Nectonsmere. It was a crushing defeat for the Northumbrians, and Edgefrith was killed. Nectonsmere was celebrated by the Picts in carvings and lamented by Bede in his ecclesiastical history as the end of English power north of the Forth. Between Trent and Nectonsmere, and despite Edgefrith being a prolific and clearly capable soldier, his reign saw the collapse of Northumbrian power to dominate the kingdoms on their southern and northern borders. Despite this end to Northumbrian imperial power, the kingdom after Edgefrith nevertheless remained intellectually and culturally powerful. This was partly due to the invigoration of the Northumbrian church that was facilitated by the Synod of Whitby, and the new connections it promoted with Rome. We will look at that intellectual vigour in the next few episodes, since the death of Edgefrith and the end of Northumbrian military hegemony provides us an ideal time to step back from royal politics and focus on the people and institutions that defined what's called the Northumbrian Golden Age from about 650 to 750. But let's briefly sum up what Northumbria can teach us about Anglo-Saxon history. 
Above all, it shows that power in Anglo-Saxon England was basically personal. The key to overlordship was to foster useful alliances with others, usually to combat a mutual enemy. Kinship and religion were useful tools in these alliances, since they created bonds of affection and blood. Already by the early 600s, some kingdoms had emerged as key allies. Mercia, Wessex, East Anglia, and of course Northumbria itself. Smaller kingdoms, like Essex and Middle Anglia, were also important, but any prospective overlord needed at least one of the major kingdoms to support them against their enemies. In other words, no one kingdom could subjugate the others on its own. Also important to note is the role of the Britons, Irish, and Picts in all this. The relationship between them and the Anglo-Saxons was not always hostile. In fact, in many cases, they were loyal allies, such as in Penda's alliance with Calwatlon, and the alliance of Dolreada with the sons of Athelfrith. These alliances did not always survive long, and in Northumbria, the first descendant of Athelfrith not to be exiled in Dolreada alienated the Scots in a move that was fatal to Northumbrian hegemony in the north. Power was personal, both within a kingdom as well as between kingdoms. Even up to the reign of Edgefrith, Northumbria was still very much a union of two kingdoms, and those kingdoms did not lose their distinct identities. Tensions between their nobility were constantly restricting what the kings of Northumbria could do, and the threat of disunion seems to have been ever-present. This could be partly offset by success nominating other kingdoms, but when those successes reversed, then kings had to look for new ways to pacify their nobility. However, successes could only be achieved when the kingdoms had been united. Making the power play between Benicia and Dera something of a catch-22, a powerful king could unite them, but a king needed them united to become powerful. Religion could also unify them and establish the authority of a ruler, as it did with Edwin and Oswald, but for Oswiu, this attempt to use religion in this way backfired, and ultimately weakened his authority. If anything is apparent from this, it's that being a king in Anglo-Saxon England was an unenviable job, and while it ensured immortality through fame, we are still talking about these men and their families after all, it brought with it a lot of hostility and complexity that could easily overwhelm even a competent ruler. Ultimately, this is what ended Northumbria's political domination of Anglo-Saxon England, but their cultural domination would continue for a while more, until it was finally snuffed out by the depredations of the Danes and the Norwegians. That is where we will go next episode, when we look at the career of Benedict Bishop, the man who set the stage for the Northumbrian Golden Age. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and it's a pleasure to be back with you. If you enjoyed this or if you've enjoyed previous episodes, I ask that you please leave a review or a like or a star rating or whatever, depending on what system you use, where you found it. It helps to get more visibility and helps us to get the, get the word out there about the podcast. There is also now a Facebook group, um, which you can find by typing the name of the podcast into, into Facebook. So if you are at all interested, feel free to drop a like there you should get notifications about when new episodes are uploaded. But that's all for now. So, thank you for listening. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast.
Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.